man, isn't that really cool? This is like biblical Christianity happening at Thrive. Like people actually going out and praying for people and seeing people's lives transformed and changed. Yeah, come on. <clears throat> Welcome to Thrive. Um, one of the things that I've really struggled with my whole life <laughs> is just I've, I've really doubted that God could ever use my life. And I'm going to give a, a word tonight, a message. And um, as I do, um, I'm just really excited to get to tell you that, like, I believe that God can use even a guy like me to share his word. Um, you know, th- this is not because these words that I've prepared are anything remarkable or special, but um, I think just in the past couple of years, God has just really encouraged me um, with knowing that he can use anybody uh, to do his work and to serve him. And um, I'm just an example of that. And so um, I'm really, really, really excited um, about this message that we're going to listen to tonight. Um, let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive right in. Lord, thank you that um, we all get to be here tonight and come together to worship you and to hear from from your word. Would you just use this passage of the Bible um, to convict us, to change us, to shape us, and to make us look more like Jesus? And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So, if you uh, have come to Thrive for the first time in a while, we're in the middle of a mini-series, a four-week mini-series called A New Community. And the main thrust of, of the series is that uh, Jesus, through what he did on the cross and then through his resurrection, Jesus creates a new kind of community that's different than any other kind of community the world has ever seen. And the question that we're asking in this series is how that actually happens. What is, you know, so community is probably one of the biggest buzzwords out there in, in our world. Like everyone's talking about community. I heard somewhere the other day that people even, you know, like they, they, they uh, don't call them clubs anymore. There's, you know, they're, they're communities, the stamp collector community. So, so, so th- this is probably one of the most significant words to, to all kinds of people, no matter what religious background you're from or whether you have one at all. But what is it that makes Christian community unique? What we're going to do each week is just look at a different key ingredient that creates authentic Christian community. Look at a key ingredient that creates authentic Christian community. So last week, it was kind of an introduction. It just talked about, we looked at the way that Jesus is the irreducible center of Christian community. Like, if you don't have Jesus, there's absolutely no reason for any of you to be here tonight. Like, Jesus is the reason that Thrive gathers. He's the grounds of our gathering. It's all about seeing him exalted, seeing his name proclaimed, and seeing the gospel lifted up. Next week, so one week from now, Devante, who led us in worship tonight, Devante's going to be looking at another key ingredient, which is the importance of truth in Christian community. So the importance of speaking truth to each other, confessing our sin to each other. And then the week after that, we'll be looking at one, uh, one other ingredient, the importance of evangelism in Christian community. So making the case that not only is Christian community one of the most powerful tools for evangelism, but all of Christian community ought to be inherently evangelistic, which takes us to this week. This week, um, we're going to look at what probably other than Jesus is the most foundational ingredient of Christian community, which is grace. And uh, actually, there should be a slide up on the screen that I think has all four of these. If um, well, hmm, That's not it. Maybe it didn't get up there. But anyway, th- th- those, are our, those are our topics. Tonight, we're going to look at grace as the foundational ingredient of Christian community. Now, when I say the word grace, that's probably one of the most commonly tossed around Christian words there is. And it's an easy word to define. All it means is simply receiving what you don't deserve. And from that definition, it's fairly obvious that grace figures fairly heavily in how Christians are to relate to one another in community. So let me just, you know, start by tossing out a couple of Bible verses. Um, So this is Romans 15, verse 7. 
Paul tells Christians to accept one another just as Christ accepted you. Or Romans 14, 13, stop passing judgment on one another. Um, in Ephesians 4, he says, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Or you know, a little later in Ephesians 4, forgive one another as God has forgiven you through Christ. So every single one of these is some kind of command to extend grace to different people. And, and one of the things about this is that this is, this is basically common social expectation, you know, sort of like good manners, both like among Christians and even among people who wouldn't call themselves Christians. I mean, I think most people would probably agree that like even if there's a person who's really, really hard for you to get along with, like the right thing to do is to be patient with them and to, you know, kind of like show them some, some, some grace. Tonight, though, I want to go a little bit deeper. Um, the claim that I want to make here is that the word grace, it's more than just kind of these straightforward, you know, pretty cut and dry um, little Bible verses about, you know, accept one another, forgive one another. Those are all important. Those are all part of the big picture. But I, I want to go a little bit deeper um, and, and make the case that all of the Christian life is just one huge journey to understand the grace of God. All of the Christian life is one huge journey to understand the grace of God. And the, the reason that heaven will last forever is that it's going to take an infinite amount of time to fully grasp just what <laughs> the gravity and the magnitude of God's grace really is. And if you encounter the grace of God, that will fundamentally change everything about how you live. And it's going to change how you live, it's going to change how you see the world, and it's going to change how you approach Christian community. Grace changes everything, and we're going to look tonight at how it changes Christian community. So, so how does that work? Well, just, just, just watch. <laughs> what I want to do is we're going to look at one of the most well-known stories of the Bible tonight, which is the story of the prodigal son. So if you have a Bible, um, turn to Luke chapter 15. And w this is a story that probably is familiar to, to a lot of you, but what I want to, I want to have us do tonight is to look at this story um, in, in sort of a new way. I want you to look at this story tonight as a story about the destruction of a community. So, so if you know this story, you know that this is a story about a family. There's a father with two sons. And a family, I mean, a family is, is just the most basic form of human community. And this is a family that's ripped apart by the actions of both of the sons in this story. And so what I want to do is tonight, we're going to walk through the story. I want to show you two heart conditions that destroyed this family and that will actually destroy any kind of community at all. And then I'm going to show you how grace puts community back together again. So that, that, that's basically the thesis tonight. The thesis is the grace of God is what creates community. The grace of God creates community. So um, I'm just going to read this story. This is Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your wealth with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So this story is probably one of the most famous stories in the whole Bible, and in English, who knows what this story is almost always called? Just shout it out if you have an idea. It's, it's almost always called the parable of the prodigal son. And that's because the word prodigal, I mean, that literally just means like spending money wastefully, which is what the, the younger son does in this story. But in verse 11, the very first thing that Jesus tells you about this parable is that it's about a man who has not one son, but two sons. This is a story not about just the one son, but it's about both of them. And we're going to look at each one, starting with the younger son. So, so he's the focus of the first part of the story. So if you look, starting in verse 12, the younger son comes to the father. He demands his share of the inheritance. And, and this was something that, you know, back in Jewish Old Testament law, it would have been customary for sons to get, receive an inheritance from their father. But upon the father's death, the way it worked would be that you'd have the older, oldest son, and he would receive two-thirds of the estate. And then you'd have, you know, a younger son, like in this story, who would receive one-third. And so for the younger son to come to the father while the father is still alive and demand that he give him his inheritance is essentially to say to his dad, Dad, you're as good as dead to me. And if that wasn't enough to break, his, break, break the father's heart, the younger son, he takes all of this, this, this wealth that the father has, like, <laughs> out, of the, out of the amazing goodness of his heart, actually chosen to give to his son, he takes it, he goes out into the world, and he squanders it. I mean, he's chasing after pleasure, he breaks all the rules, he wrecks his fortune, he ruins his life. And when he hits rock bottom, he's so broke, he's so desperate, that what he does is he hires himself out to feed pigs. And if you were, if you were like someone listening to Jesus tell the story for the first time, you, you would have probably been like wincing inside, because every good Jewish person would have known that pigs were the, the unclean animal. <laughs> and... and and, and to be told that, that you're so low down on the ladder that all you can do is feed pigs and you want to fill your stomach with the, the pig food that they're eating, I mean, there was probably no lower that you could go. But then, verse 17, 
you find out the younger son comes to his senses. He's, he realizes that, you know, let me just think about this here. Like, my father has all these servants. They're way better fed than I am. Like, why don't I just go back to my father? And I know that he'll never accept me back again as his son. But I'll, I'll, I'll try to apologize. And, and maybe, just maybe, he'll at least let me work for him as one of his slaves. And, and, and I'll have something to eat. So he heads home. But while he's still a long way off, the father sees the son, he runs to him, he embraces him, and he throws a party for him. Because at last, the father has his lost son home, and it's the happiest day of his life. Now, let me think, let's think about the story just for a minute in terms of community. In the story, the first thing that you find out about what destroys community is the three-letter three word, the word sin. The younger brother's selfish choices are kind of obviously what contribute to the just complete meltdown of this family. I mean, he, he says, like, I would rather live this worldly and sinful lifestyle to the extent that I'm going to just completely blow off my dad. I'm going to insult him. I'm going to ruin his reputation. I'm going to just completely trash his good name so that I can go and live however I want. And it rips this whole family apart. And I would imagine that in an audience as big as this, that you have, many of you have probably seen firsthand how sin can destroy community. I mean, you might have witnessed sin unfold in a divorce, in a broken friendship, a church split maybe, or some kind of abusive relationship. The point is, sin destroys community. But what you also find out here with the younger son is that grace is what restores that community. So, look at verse 22. In verse 22, you find out not only that the father receives the son home again, but you find out how he receives him home. So look, you know, he, the younger son, he's thinking, man, I've totally blown it with my dad. Like, there's no way I'm ever going to be received back to him unless I relate to him as a servant. So look what he does. In verse 21, he tries to blurt out this little pre-prepared speech where he's, you know, going to come grovel to his dad and say, dad, I want to be a slave. But before he can even get to that part about like, you know, hey, dad, you know, just hire me. <laughs> Let me work for you. The father cuts him off and he says, quick, bring the robe, bring the ring. And both of these things, the robe and the ring, would have been symbols of the son's restoration into the family again. So look at what's going on here. We tend to relate to God in the way that the younger son does. He thinks the only way that he can relate to his father is by working for him. But the father refuses. He refuses to receive the son back as a servant. He only will receive him back as a son. And yet sometimes we try to relate to God on the basis of our works all the time. The, this mentality is to say that the gospel is something that you do. That man, you know, if, if we could just impress God with how much we do for him, you know, then we'd be worthy of the robe, then we'd be worthy of the ring, then he'd receive us back. But, I mean, think about this. Is there anything that the younger son can do at this point in the story to make himself worthy? I mean, he's guilty of, of despising his father's love. He's guilty of ruining his father's reputation. He's guilty of squandering his father's wealth. He has absolutely nothing to offer. And yet he still thinks that he can earn his father's favor through his works. And this gets out a hugely important truth about what the gospel actually is. Do you remember the first parable Jesus tells in this passage? You know, the first parable in this chapter, it's about a lost sheep. And the servant goes after the lost sheep until he's found it. Or then there's the second parable he tells about the lost coin. And the, and the woman goes and searches for it until it's been found. And then in this story, there's a lost son. 
do you see there's, there's a common factor in each one of these. There's a lost something in every single story. And, and did you notice the sheep can't bring itself back home until someone goes out and finds it? The coin can't, can't, can't make itself be found. It's, it's an inanimate object. And in this story, the son is utterly lost, and he's utterly incapable of coming back to his dad on his terms. And we're lost. Without Jesus, every single human being on this earth is lost. The gospel, literally, that word means good news. But it actually starts out as bad news. And the bad news is that all of us have gone astray. I mean, this is just uh, a quote from the Bible. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So, so in other words, the gospel is that all of us, to some extent, are the younger brother. All of us have despised the love of God. You know, we've squandered God's gifts. You know, we've turned our back on relationship with God. And, 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 and when the younger son comes home, the father's reception of him back is a totally unmerited gift of grace. Grace is how God receives you. Grace is how God receives me. Grace is how God shapes community. Think about why this is. Think about why this is. Take any kind of community at all. Like, I mean, it could be Christian community. It could be any kind of like group of people you've ever, ever been around. What is it that kind of creates a bond between a group of people? And I think one answer that you could possibly give to this, the thing that creates a bond between people who are all different from all different backgrounds is common shared experience. So, so for example, you know, some of you might know that a few, you know, a few months ago, I, I got to go down to, to travel to southern Mexico. Actually, I had a little mug here tonight that I got from there. Some of you might have seen it. And I uh, was, was asked to speak at a, a retreat for a bunch of MKs. Anyone know what MKs are? Missionary kids, right. <clears throat> so these are kids who grew up in another country um, because their parents were missionaries there. And, you know, I, I kind of thought at first that, well, okay, you know, this is this little retreat for a group of MKs, and they're mostly going to probably come from, from, you know, from Mexico. That's where this thing is being held. So, to my surprise, I, I go down there, and I discover that there, there, there are MKs who've come from as far away as, like, Oregon, and there's another couple people from Florida. And I was like, wow, you know, why have these people come all this way for just this little five-day retreat? And, and what I found was this, this is probably one of the most tight-knit communities that I'd ever, ever experienced. But why? Like, why did that community have such a powerful draw? And, and as I was there for that week, what I discovered is, well, okay, you know, I'm, if you're an MK, I'm now coming to realize that your whole life has been one of not fitting in. You know, you don't really fit into the country where, where you, you live because, you know, you have white skin, everyone else has black skin, or, you know, you're a gringo and everyone else is a native or whatever it is, you know. And you also don't fit into America because, you know, you weren't raised there, so, you know, you might look American on the outside, but inside you're, you're you know, you're African or Mexican or Chinese or Thai or whatever, and so, so no one in America gets you, you know, you don't really get them. Your whole life is basically this experience of, of not really belonging anywhere. The one place you do belong is among other MKs who get it and who know what it's like. And so, and so, so I realized, like, this was the draw. The reason that all of these people would come from thousands of miles away to this little dinky retreat in the middle of nowhere in Mexico is because they had had a powerful shared experience, and it drew them all together. If that's what shapes community... If powerful shared experience is what brings people together, think about what that means if you're a Christian. There's no experience that you can have that's more powerful than being saved completely by the grace of God. I mean, I, I heard a story 
long time ago about a guy who was on death row. You know, I can't vouch for the full authenticity of the story. I don't even remember where I heard it. But the story that, as I remember, it was a guy on death row, and, and, and he's, he's trying to get off death row by pretending to be insane. While he's on death row, the guy comes to Christ. And then he goes back before the authorities. He's so transformed that he, like, admits, he fesses up and he says, I was lying. I'm not really insane. You know, kill me if you have to. I'm, I'm willing to take the consequences for what I've done. And then the authorities, they're, they're just so flabbergasted by this, and they're convinced that the only reason that someone would, would admit to lying and, and go to their own death was if they actually were insane. So they think this guy's insane, and they let him live, and he gets to stay alive, and he gets to witness to all these people on, on death row. And, and, and the point is, I mean, that's a very dramatic story, but every single person who's a Christian who has met Jesus in this room has had the experience of being saved by grace. And that is the most powerful, that is the most transformative experience that you can undergo. Which is why, when you're in the presence of other Christians and you have that shared, who have that shared experience, there's an instant bond. There's an instant bond. Let me just give you one personal story about this in my own life. Um, one day, this was probably two years ago, sitting at a church. And I was sitting in this church on, on a morning when the passage that was being preached on was Joel chapter 3. Anyone read the book of Joel anytime recently? Yeah? Okay, well, you're forgiven. <laughs> Joel chapter 3 has got to be probably one of the most terrifying chapters of the whole Bible. Like, this is a chapter, it's all about the day of the Lord, which anyone know what that is? The, the, the day when, well, it kind of depends on your, your, your flavor of theology here. But <laughs> point is, the day when God will come back to judge the world at Jesus' return. And listening to that sermon was probably one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had in church. And here's why. Because when you read that chapter, as you go through the different images that Joel uses to describe the day of the Lord, you come to verse 13. Let me just read this. Verse 13 of that book says, Swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. And the preacher explained that verse that morning. He said that in ancient Israel, there was a practice where farmers would pick grapes, they would put them in this vat, and then they would get in the vat, and then with their feet, they would trample the grapes until everyone was crushed. And it was a way to get the juice out. And he explained that that image points ahead to the, the event spoken of in the book of Revelation, where God will take those who have rebelled against him and throw them into the winepress of his wrath, and utterly crush them. And that passage is, it's sick. I mean, it's utterly sickening to think about what the wrath of God means for people who don't know Jesus. And as he, he, he continued to preach, and he, he explained that, you know, this is not because God is cruel, but because of his utter horror against sin, his, his resolve to deal with sin, and, and, and as he spoke of Jesus' longing to see God's, to see people turn to him, to see people repent so that they, they wouldn't have to face judgment, the, the whole church that morning was just rocked to the core. I mean, there, were, there, were, there was a guy who was sitting in that service who just was weeping for the unsaved people that he knew in his life because of, because of this message. And as I sat there, I just had this experience of, I, I looked around the people, all the people in the sanctuary, and I saw dozens and dozens of these other Christians, and it, and, and it just it hit me that I, I felt a kinship with them that was deeper than any kind of kinship I remember <laughs> feeling in a long time. Because I realized, man, I'm surrounded. 
by people who have experienced the same salvation. They've been saved in that same way that I have. You know, I deserved hell. I deserved judgment. And then I realized we deserved hell. We deserved judgment. But Jesus saved us. Jesus was crushed for us. And when the penny drops, and you actually recognize just the depth of what Jesus has done in laying down his life on the cross and taking on the full power of God's wrath against sin, that's going to create a bond between any other person who's experienced that. And, and, and by the way, that bond gets deeper the, the, the more that you realize the, the, the depth of the gospel. And that means recognizing not just the amazing grace of God to a greater degree, but even, even the depth of sin from which he pulled you out of. I mean, so it, it, even, even someone like the Apostle Paul knew this. I mean, did you know that in one of Paul's earlier letters, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. And then in a little bit, of, uh, in a later letter, he says, I'm the least of all people. He goes one step lower. And then in an even later letter, he says, I am the worst of sinners. And so look, like even Paul over the course of his life is realizing, wow, like I can't believe Jesus saved me. I mean, he came to realize the depth of the sin that God had raised him out of. And the more that you do that, and the more that you realize, man, I can't believe Jesus did that. He's just such an amazing God. The more you recognize the gravity of, of sin and the gravity of God's grace, that experience of community is going to get deeper. In the Old Testament, Solomon was in the business of building a temple. Remember this? You know, he takes these stones out of a quarry. He brings them to Jerusalem, and, and he builds this big house for, for God's name. And today, God is also in the business of building a temple. It's a spiritual temple. The stones are believers. The quarry is the world, and God is the stone carver. And if you just, just think for a minute about how Solomon would have got those stones there. You know, he didn't speak to them and say, hey, stones, you know, get up and Get yourself over to Jerusalem. <laughs> I mean, they're stones. And just as stones can't move, sinners can't save themselves. You know, God has to chisel Christians out of the world using the supernatural tool of the Holy Spirit. And when Solomon brought the stones to Jerusalem, it's recorded that they were cut out so perfectly that they just slid together without a sound. The temple fit together in a perfect unity. And if we've been chiseled out of, out, out of the rock by the perfect work of our master stone carver, Jesus then we're, we're also going to be a community that's perfectly united, each believer bound together by the glorious experience of grace. So do you see how grace creates community? Just, just look around at the people in this room. I mean, how do you see each other? Do you see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ who have been saved together by Jesus? Because that is what you are. So, so, so the first thing that you see in this story of the prodigal son is not just that sin can destroy community, but you also see in this story how grace can rebuild community. But now let's look at the second son. And the second son, I actually think, is a little bit more interesting than this, this, this first son. So, we, 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 so, so you know, one of the things that you see with the, the older son is that, that he, on the surface seems to be the polar opposite of the other brother. So, you know, for example, if you, if you just look at verses 25 through 30, you know, the, where, where do you see this guy? He, the, the older brother, while well, all of the partying is going on for, for, for the younger son to come home, he's out in the field because he's out there working for his dad. So, you know, by, by all appearances, this is the brother who's the moral brother, he's the rule-keeping brother, he does what his dad wants. But then, when, when the younger son comes home, the, the, the older brother explodes. I mean, like, 
look at his reaction. He's furious that the father welcomes him home. He's, he refuses to go in and join the party that's been thrown for him. The elder brother is angry at the father's compassion. And look at the reason he gives. This is, this is 29 and 30. He says, all these years, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he doesn't even call him his brother. He says, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Why is the older brother angry in this story? The reason the older brother is angry with his brother is that while he's been out living it up in the world, wasting his father's money, he's been home. He's been serving the father. He's been the faithful guy. He's been the rule-following guy. He's never disobeyed the father's orders. And because of this, he believes the father owes him. He says to his father, you know, I've been out here slaving for you, and you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends and do what I wanted. He's admitting that deep down, the reason that he followed all of the rules was so that he could get something out of his dad. So he could put his dad in his debt. He doesn't follow the rules because he loves his father. He follows the rules because he loves the father's things. And in this way, the older brother is exactly the same as the younger brother. Just think about this. What's the younger brother's problem? The younger brother's problem was that he loved the father's things more than the father. He'd rather have his dad's money than his dad himself. And now we find out that this is the exact same thing that the older brother is guilty of. But, but there's a crucial, there, there is a difference between them. The younger brother loves the father's things more than the father, so what does his reaction look like? He takes the money and he runs, doesn't he? But the older brother stays. He's the good son. You know, he obeys the dad. The dad he, he dots his eyes. He crosses his T's. But all of it is a facade for idolatry. And what this means is that there are two ways to be lost. The first way is, to, is the younger brother way. The first way is to break all the rules like the younger brother does. But the second way is to keep all the rules like the older brother does. So, so let me just put this in another way. The first way, the younger brother way, this is the way of relativism. So you, you probably have heard the word relativism, which just, just basically means that there's no such thing as absolute truth. You know, so the idea that's you know, pretty common today that what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. But at the center of a relativistic universe is not just some big empty vacuum. At the center of a relativistic universe is yourself. You're the one who's calling the shots. You're the one who decides what's true. You know, relativism is all about you and your pleasures. And this is the strategy that the younger brother takes. But the second way is the way not of relativism, but of religion. <laughs> religion says, if you obey, then God will bless you. And so, so, like the elder brother, religious people, they slave away doing things like going to church or praying all the time or reading the Bible all the time and doing all the things that Christians do. But, but don't you see in this story that the only reason that they're doing them is to get something from God? You know, so, so if you pray enough to God, he'll give you the job that you want. If, you know, he'll give you the car you want. He'll give you the wife you want or whatever it is. Or you know, serve in church long enough and, and God will consider you one of his favorites. You can like, feel better about yourself because like, you're, you're on God's inside team. The reason that religious people get mad like the older brother gets mad is because they say, God, you know, here I am trying to serve you as, you know, as a pastor or by, you know, doing my morning devotions every day. But man, you know, look at this. My life is falling apart. Why did you let my life falling apart, fall apart? Here I, you know, I'm serving you and I'm doing all these things for you and, and you won't even let my day go, go the way I want it to go. 
religious people use God to get things. They're actually using rules and using religion in order to avoid Jesus altogether. And here, here's a quote from Tim Keller who's been a big inspiration for me in, on this passage. And he says, don't obey God to get things. Obey God to get God. Religious people find God useful. Christians find God beautiful. So if the younger son in this passage is sort of meant to teach you the lesson of the need to repent of your sin, then think about the older brother. I mean, the older brother teaches that (laughs) as important as it is to repent of sin, I think it might even be more important for many of us in this room to repent of our own righteousness. There are far more people who are going to hell because they've never repented of their righteousness. What does this now mean for community? Let me just kind of bring this back to our theme. In this story, one little detail to notice here is that the elder brother actually kind of constitutes a cliffhanger in the, in, in the passage. Do you notice that the elder brother, at the time the story is over, he's still left outside. The father has, has gone out to him. He's literally humiliated himself. He's left his own party in order to go out and, and plead with his older son and, and, and to try to get him to come join the, join the feast. And he ends the story without actually telling you what the older son does. It's the, it's the older brother who, at the end of the story, is the one who is the most guilty for leaving this family, this, this community, in tatters. And what this means is that the older brother and the younger brother, they're just as guilty for destroying community. But, but now I think you can see that they destroyed it for kind of two, in two different ways. You know, the younger brother was because of sin. The older brother, because of the specific sin of what you would call self-righteousness. He, he refuses to go in because he refuses to have fellowship with his younger brother because he thinks that he's too good for his brother. The older brother has constructed his whole life around the belief that because he follows all the rules, he's a good person, and he's righteous in his own eyes. And this tears down community every single time. Remember the story that Jesus tells about the guy, who, you know, the Pharisee and the tax collector, and they're both in the temple praying, and, and the, the Pharisee is in the very, very front because he's proud of himself and he thinks that he, you know, God deserves to, to, to reward him. But, but the tax collector standing in the very back. Do you notice what's, what's happening in the story? Like, here are two people who are, who are literally divided. They, they, they refuse to be in community with each other because the one guy at the front thinks he's better than the guy in the back. Self-righteousness tears community apart. Self-righteousness tore the early church apart. Do you remember there's a part in, in the book of Galatians? Anyone read that book recently? New Testament. So maybe there's a better chance. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, way to go. New Testament. Book of Galatians where Paul calls out another apostle. He calls out Peter. God has already taught Peter <laughs> this lesson that, that, that this passage is all about, that we're saved by grace. doesn't matter if you're a Jew. doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. You're saved by grace and not by the works of the law. He'd already taught him, therefore, that all foods were clean, you know, it's not as though, you know, that because, you know, you're a Jewish Christian that therefore you can't eat what these Gentile Christians do. All of, those, all, all of those foods are no longer a big deal. But when Peter comes to Antioch, this is this church that's a mixture of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. He comes down to this church and he begins to separate himself from the Gentile Christians and he only eats with Jewish Christians. And, and this would be a little bit like, it'd be a little bit like this. You know, imagine, you know, you're walking into your, okay, this is a bit of a throwback. You, you walk into your high school cafeteria. Yeah, sorry about that. I'm sure many of you don't want to be reminded of those days. But, you know, imagine, imagine you walk into your high school cafeteria, and there's the table with all the nerds, and there's the table with all the jocks. 
And uh, I'm not going to ask you which table you would have sat at. But, you know, imagine that you're, you're neither of those groups, but, you know, you're going to go sit with the jocks because, man, you know, they're just way better than all those nerds. Peter was essentially sending that kind of message that, that, that by only eating with Jewish Christians, all these Gentile Christians, these guys are unclean, they're inferior. Do you see what he's doing? Peter is being a racist. Peter's saying that you, we, we Jewish Christians are better than you Gentiles. And that self-righteousness very nearly split that church in two. And, and when Paul calls him out on it, you know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, now Peter, don't you know that we Christians aren't you know, like those nasty racists? He, do, he doesn't just kind of tap him on the knuckles and chide him. He says, no, Peter, the reason that what you're doing is wrong, verse 14, because what you're doing is not in line with the truth of the gospel. And this is why racism has no place among Christians. Because the claim to have, you know, the, because I have white skin or because I have black skin or because I was born in this country or born in that country or because I belong to that culture or this culture or whatever it may be is utterly out of line with the gospel. The gospel is not that God saved you because your skin color is better than your brother's or because, you know, you think your country has better freedoms than that other country or because your culture is more hardworking or whatever than that other culture. The gospel is that God has saved everybody by the grace of God. Racism, nationalism, nativism have no place among Christians. Self-righteousness can tear the early church apart. It can tear our nation apart. I'm not even going to comment on that because, I mean, you can probably see it for yourself. If you just look at the way that, like, every person on the left thinks that the people on the right are wrong, everyone on the right thinks the people on the left are wrong, and they're not even willing to admit that, well, maybe both of us are wrong. Self-righteousness can tear the church apart, and self-righteousness can tear thrive apart. When the father is out, you know, celebrating the, the, the repentance of the younger son, the older son refuses to celebrate. And let me just ask you tonight, are there people whose repentance that you refuse to celebrate? I mean, imagine that, that you know, just, just for a minute, think in your mind of the people that you just most violently disagree with, or the people that kind of most weird you out, or the people that you're most uncomfortable with. You know, so just to, to, to kind of jog your memory, maybe it's like people who voted for Hillary. Maybe it's Trump voters. Maybe it's illegal immigrants. Maybe it's the transgender community. Maybe it's liberal college students. Maybe it's radical Muslims. Maybe it's crotchety old Christians who love old hymns and throw a fit anytime church doesn't go their way. Maybe it's naive millennial Christians who got rid of all those hymns and got rid of the organ and preached scrappy, terrible theology. And then Jeremiah, this one's for you. Maybe it's Calvinists. Maybe it's Arminians. I don't know. You know, just imagine the group of people that you find it hardest to get along with and that you have every reason to disagree with. And now, imagine this. Imagine that next week at Thrive, that, you know, some huge group, like 50 or more people of, those, of, of that crowd, they come here. How are you going to react? I mean, so, you know, imagine we've got 50 plus people from like the Young Democrats Club or something. You know, or 50 plus people from the Young Republicans Club, or, or 50 plus people from the local LGBTQ plus club, or, you know, wh whatever it is, they all show up at Thrive because they're curious about Jesus. And imagine, glory be, the Holy Spirit's at work, <laughs> and some of them come to faith in Christ, and man, now they're like coming back, and, 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 and people are, are like plugging in to Thrive, and they're growing, and that means that <laughs> they're growing, but man... You're a little worried because, wow, this, this group of people, they're bringing all of their opinions with them. They're bringing all of their past, all of their issues. And I'm not going to ask you what it is that you would do in a situation like that, but what I, what I want to ask you is how you would feel. <laughs> I mean, just what would your gut reaction be to that? 
And if you're, (laughs) I hope that my first reaction would be to just want to party and to celebrate the fact that, you know, there are 50 new names written in heaven (laughs) rather than to be on edge (laughs) because I don't necessarily have warm, fuzzy feelings to certain kinds of people because I'm a sinner. Whose repentance do you refuse to celebrate? You know, whose spiritual birthday party do you refuse to go in and join? You know, man, I, I know of a church in a wealthy area, and years ago ran an, like an AA program, and, and many of the people who came to, to AA, you know, they, they were smokers. And there soon started to appear these little cigarette butts out in the parking lot of the church. And, and some of the people at the church kind of got frustrated and mad at that. They didn't want the cigarette butts in their parking lot. And, and the pastor kind of had to, to set that straight. And, you know, it's nice to want a clean church but not if it keeps you from just downright partying, that there are people who are coming to this church who desperately need Jesus and are finding Jesus at this church, even if there are cigarette butts in the parking lot. Let me just make this real, okay? So, like, I know the stereotype of Gig Harbor is that Gig Harbor is a town that's just white and rich. I I, I know that. And it's not like that's totally a bad thing, but look, if that's closed our hearts to those who aren't white and rich or, or whatever your background is, then man, that, that is so sad. I, I long to see Thrive be a little bit grittier. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if there were people who came to Thrive who were utterly unlike us, but who need Jesus and want to and wanna meet him and know him, like the poor, the messy, the broken. <laughs> and messiness is messy. I mean, messiness creates all kinds of headaches. <laughs> and I don't care. Because I want people to meet Jesus. And in fact, I, you know, guys, I don't even think Thrive is necessarily as, you know, homogeneous as, you know, kind of the stereotype might be, you know. Like, look at this. I, we're, we're, we're a pretty eclectic group of people. I mean, think about this. We've got people who come from rich families and poor families. We've got people who are white collar and blue collar and, you know, people who have finished college and never went to college and um, people who are married, who are single, people who work, and people who are looking for work, people who vote blue, people who vote red, you know, people who didn't vote, uh, people who love Seattle, people who hate Seattle, that's, you know, the real dividing one. Uh, you know, you got, you, got, you, got, you got like the plastic, fantastic Gig Harbor people, and then you've got the nitty-gritty Port Orchard people, whatever, you know. You got people who are slick and popular, and then you got others like me who are a little bit dorky and awkward. How do you view your brother's and sisters, how do you react when someone who's really hard for you to love sucks you up into a conversation and, and, and it keeps you from talking to all of the people that you've been waiting to catch up with at Thrive this week? Or, you know, how do you respond when you're from T-Town and you have more street cred than everyone in this room combined and you're doing life with a Gig Harbor kid whose dad's a doctor and was born with a silver spoon in his mouth? And I hope, I'm sorry for all the, you know, these are stereotypes, they're not all true, but I hope that our reaction is to love each other. I hope that our reaction is to encourage each other and to figure out how to, how to strengthen each other and to extend kindness even to the most difficult people because we know that that's the same kind of grace that God has given to us. Yeah, I mean, I hope that we would worship Jesus together and, and, and find that the ground is level at the cross because we've all been saved by grace. The question that we opened this series with was the question, what would it look like if Thrive could be all that a Christian community can be? And, and, and if that's the case, 
then I, I, I want to speak to those of you tonight who kind of feel like you're an insider at Thrive. And, and, and you know, you, you feel like, man, I've, I, I know people here. My friends are here. <laughs> and if you're an insider at Thrive, I, I want to ask you to take the lead in looking out for those who feel like outsiders. And if you feel like an outsider, like you're still, you know, trying to meet people and, and find w- how and where you, you might fit, I want to ask you just to, to stick around for a while. Because we need you. We can't have all that, we can't have a Christian community that's all that a Christian community can be unless you're a part of it. And so, I, man, as, as we kind of finish here and go into small groups, um, I just want to kind of let that question um, hang over our, our, our time in small groups tonight. What would it look like for all of Thrive to be, a, a, be, to be all that a Christian community can be? And man, I, I hope that at least one place that we can start is that it would be a community of grace. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for um, this, this passage and just for the powerful way that it speaks of the way that we're saved by the grace of God, not on the basis of what we've done, um, but on the basis of what you've done for us in laying down your life um, on the cross and rising again. Um, God, would we be a community marked by that grace um, where it doesn't matter who we are or what our background is, um, that we would all come to the level ground of the cross um, to exalt Jesus, to strengthen one another, um, and to be the kind of Christian community that you want us to be. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.